Today's podcast delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when sending on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, Editor-in-Chief of Business Insider. David Scott is on assignment somewhere in Europe where he's no doubt getting familiar with the economics of Brexit and will probably also drop into Ireland to chat to people about what a housing market Armageddon really looks like. Um, but in his stead, I'm joined by two great guests. The first is Dr. Chris Wright from the Business School at the University of Sydney. Chris holds a PhD uh, in political science from Cambridge and has held positions at Cambridge and the University of London. He's an associate editor at the Journal of Industrial Relations, and he focuses his research on the intersection of employment, globalization, and public policy, and he has a particular interest in immigration and labor market regulation. Chris, it must have been a very fascinating couple of weeks for you with all of this uh, 457 activity. Yes, indeed, Paul, a lot of activity, Uh, some... uh some change at a surface level. I'm not sure how much change has been at a more detailed level, but um, anyway, it's great to be here and I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's great. Um, I'm really looking forward to the chat. Our other guest is someone who listeners um, will be very familiar with. Uh, he's a frequent guest for us on the show. Now, it's uh, Stephen Kukoulos of Market Economics, um, a, a well-known uh, economist and commentator on all matters uh, economic and public policy, uh, former economic advisor in the Gillard government. Uh, Stephen, great to have you back. Thanks, Paul. And there's lots to talk about, too, on budgets and good and bad debt and a whole host of other things. There sure is. Uh, we're going to talk about inflation uh, with Chris here. We're going to take a deep dive on the labour market, a big, uh, vitally important part of everything, not just for us. Um, those of us who like to um, talk about the economy, but uh, for all of us as individuals, because we all have to work in it, um, we'll look at the 457 changes and we'll look at ahead to the federal budget and uh, uh, Scott Morrison's announcement um, where he says he's going to um, distinguish between good and bad debt. No doubt, uh, quite an interesting conversation. Okay, first of all, to inflation. Amazingly, headline inflation uh, appears to be running ahead of wages growth now. Um, core inflation we saw this week from the ABS, not quite in the RBA band, but heading, creeping up back towards it, about 1.8%. bit susceptible to further disinflationary pulses if there are any of them coming out there. Um, I think really interestingly now there's a divergence of views, Stephen. Um, for the first time in a while, on what the there's a real divergence of views on what, on what the RBA will need to do next. There is, and it's based on inflation at the principal level because that's their target, of course, two to three percent inflation over the course of the cycle, and we've undershot that in an underlying sense, even though there was that little tick up in the annual rate. But it's, of course, more than that. It's what's happening to things like wages growth. It's what's happening to the spare capacity in the labour market. Unemployment has been edging up over the last six months or so. Underemployment's edging up over the last six months or so. Uh, so you've got this scenario where the the market is truly divided. There are some people thinking house prices, global economic recovery, some evidence of global inflation starting to lift, and that that will parlay back into the Australian economy sometime soon as a factor that will force the RBA to be on hold in the near term, but hike on a, I don't know, 12-month basis or thereabouts. Others thinking that, gee, you know, this uh, core inflation is still below target. It's likely when the RBA release their forecasts in the monetary policy statement uh, next week, we're going to see a forecast of around about 2%, so at the bottom of the range still, probably with wages growth at I don't know, 2%, very low. Uh, and that that sort of scenario and the fact that we've seen a volatile, but volatile downwards in many commodity prices feeding into an RBA decision that they're going to cut rates uh, and that the housing market will correct itself with uh, the regulatory changes, the oversupply issues in some areas, and people just realising that, uh, hey, you know, prices are really expensive. And, of course, shows appearing on TV – Flipping houses for a profit, that's yeah. the best signal, I think, that, <laughs> Ring the bell. A, that we, we've rung the bell, that we've got the peak now. Yeah. Um, what's your view, um, RBA? Because I, I think you said that they, they need to cut. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I, look, I'm on the, I'm on the cut side for, for a couple of reasons. One is that the inflation rate is still very low and that you know, even if we were to see a 25 or a couple of 25 great cuts over the next six months, for example, you're not going to get inflation blowing the top end of the target range, I don't think. Uh, growth is still 
moderate. You know, we're, we're muddling along. It's just this, I don't know, this tepid rate of growth. You know, we've got a minus 0.5 for GDP, followed by a plus 1.1. Sort of average them out or look at the annual figure, and it's sort of two, two and a half-ish. It's not really strong enough. And then you sort of overlay the labour market numbers, which we'll hear a lot more about shortly, I'm sure, um, telling us that wages growth really isn't there. Uh, so the things that the RBA can influence, should influence, are suggesting that a rate cut wouldn't blow the inflation target and it might just provide a little bit of help to the business sector uh, that is still being dogged by a fairly... Uh, you know, unimpressive performance for CapEx. So that's the sort of reasoning that I'm thinking. Not in a hurry. The RBA's got to change its rhetoric, of course, before they go there. But I still think the next move's down, not up. Um, it's certainly going to be a very uh, interesting statement next week, um, their, their take on it. Um, I think um, they've started to talk a little bit more lately about um, the, the labour market, Chris, um, that it is looking a little bit weak. We had that mm-hmm. surprise tick up in the unemployment rate to 5.9%. Um, and at the moment, there just doesn't seem to be any kind of inflationary pressures on the wages side at all. Yeah, it's amazing that for many decades, the, one of the key issues of uh, policy in terms of the labour market was that wages were too high, and that was a driver of inflation, and now we seem to have the opposite problem. Uh, yeah, not, not uh, uh, good figures, I think, in terms of wages. Uh, I think it's particularly concerning in terms of uh, some of the things you've been talking about in terms of the that gap between wages and, and profits in recent quarters and also uh, looking at a, a longer-term historical trends. Um, the minimum wage, national minimum wage in Australia, it's pretty high by international standards, um, but uh, as a proportion of um, average weekly ordinary time earnings, it's gone from 60% in uh, the late 80s uh, to around 45% uh, uh, last year. So... Um, so there's uh, wage growth seems to be particularly sluggish at the lower end of the um, of the labour market, and I think that could be a, a, an issue with things like that penalty rates decision by the Fair Work Commission uh, in recent months, uh, specific to the hospitality and retail sectors. But that could well be a precedent for other sectors. Uh, employers may make um, applications for penalty rates to be adjusted in other um, parts of the economy, and uh, and that could have a a negative effect on wage growth at the lower end. Yeah, um, and you see this obviously being, you know, a bit starting to form into. If you if you look at this, how that all plays out down the track, um, a very significant policy challenge um, in terms of policy responses because. Um, you know, uh, with an, uh, an unemployment rate at 5.9%, record high levels of, I think, youth unemployment mm-hmm. yeah. and very, very high levels of underemployment. Yeah. A lot of slack in the labour market. People out there wanting to work more. Um, and obviously the, the big risk um, on the youth side uh, is that you get this entrenched uh, unemployment and people, you know, have trouble skilling up. Um, through their late teens, early 20s. Um, and the policy response options then become quite complicated and difficult and costly too, right? They, they do indeed, yeah. So if you, if you add up that youth unemployment uh, plus underemployment for that 18 to 24 age bracket, it's around 30% of people in that in that bracket uh, in the labour market. So that's that's a challenge. And something else that doesn't get a great deal of attention, but I think it's a real uh, concerning issue going forward is the... Uh, problem of long-term unemployment amongst older workers seeking work. So 55 to 64-year-olds, uh, 40% long-term unemployment, um, or 40% of unemployed people in that category are long-term unemployed, uh, which is pretty eye-opening, especially as the population ages and we need more people to stay in work for longer um, to, to ensure that there isn't a, 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 um, a negative impact upon on, uh, on fiscal or pressures on fiscal policy. Um, so um, how do we do that? Um, it's, a, it's a big challenge for policymakers. It's also a big challenge for organisations. You know, there are instances of reported cases of structural discrimination against older workers. Uh, you know, people find it very difficult to transition. Yeah, we saw something to today, I think, that um, people as, uh, at the age of 45 or so... Indeed, yeah. Uh, ..are believe that they're... That, that, reaching that age, I mean, I just turned 40, um, you know, you reach, you reach that age and you start to get this, start to hit this new problem uh, when you're seeking work, um, that uh, that appears to be a, some kind of hurdle for, for certain companies. Yeah, so, uh, and especially when we see these projections of people being born today, uh, will um, likely be 
aged around 100 or so. I say this to my students and they say, that's scary. We don't, we, we don't live to 100 or 120, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, life expectancy age of around 80 sounds fine. But nevertheless, you know, the technology is there. And, um, and, uh, and so the, the, I think there will need to be a policy response in terms of uh, eventually around uh, um, changes to retirement age. But there's also that, that kind of cultural problem, I think, within organisations of how do you, how do you uh, accommodate people who want to stay in work longer? And as someone who's well and truly above that age threshold, um, it, it is an issue. And I've been doing a little bit of work on, on another front with the um, uh, how we engage the older members of society into the workforce, particularly with these issues of workforce participation potentially declining because of the ageing population and the pressures that that does put on the budget. But also we're losing... Uh, a, significant, a significant proportion of the workforce to retirement, even though at the age of 60, 65 and even 70, many of those people are highly competent um, at, at, at performing a, a very valuable task in the economy, yet there's the uh, difficulty of them gaining full-time employment or even part-time employment. And so there's this question, it's not just bumping up the retirement age from 65 to 67 to perhaps 70 one day, uh, but it's really how do you how do you structure the pension, the superannuation system, and even just the employment system to, uh, to encourage workers who've got a lot to offer individually and from a social perspective for themselves, but also from a macroeconomic perspective, how do we get the workforce participation rate to stay up? And I think that's a huge challenge. I don't know quite what the answer is, but mm. it's something that you know, Mr Hockey talked about with the intergenerational report a, a couple of years ago, and it was a really interesting debate, but it sort of seems to have just drifted away mm. in, in recent times, even though, as you're saying, the, um, uh, the issue is becoming more, in, more acute by the day. Mm. You know, fascinating. I um, was at an event recently with a, um, a, a public policymaker, somebody who's on the economic side, um, and she was saying that one of the uh, things that we're likely to see uh, in the coming years is that you'll have two careers, um, that you'll get to a certain point in uh, because um, I don't want to over-dramatize it and, and sound like, you know, my uncle, but say, you know, the world is changing so fast now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but the reality is that if you train now uh, in 20 years' time, there is a very high likelihood, say even in engineering, um, there's a very high likelihood that some of those skills will be obsolete or uh, will be done by, um, you know, some form of automation uh, or will be partially replaced by some sort of automation so that you need to reskill or at least take the core of what you're doing and adapt and build on it. Mm -hmm. um, but, of course, then you're looking at a second wave of education. Now, whether that falls on the private sector to, um, to deliver for its workforce, you know, there's a natural, I think, um, uh, enthusiasm in some parts of politics to say, well, we can fix that um, and, and put together a plan, you know, for retraining. Um, um, probably the answer is that it's probably some form of combination of the two, as it sort of currently is, but at a much greater scale uh, across the workforce. Chris, is this something that, uh, that you're looking at? Are there countries that are um, struggling with the same kind of issues around the world? Yeah, I mean, I think, the, uh, I, well, I think all countries are struggling with this. Uh, I think that the Danish model... The flex security system they have is uh, is an attractive system. Can uh, you explain it? So basically, it means that there's a highly flexible labour market. That there are um, very weak requirements around or um, or protections of workers in, in employment. It's very easy to hire someone. It's very easy to fire someone. Sorry, very easy to fire someone. Very easy to hire someone. Um, so uh, employers can hire without the um, without the worry that they may have to commit to this person f for a long time if. if if the employment doesn't work out. Um, but then when people are in um, unemployment, there's a um, training system, uh, which, I th uh, which is a vocational level, uh, high-level uh, training, um, st structured training, and also replacement wages. Uh, I think it's four, four replacement wages or 90%, very high wow. level of replacement wages for nine months. So it gives people the capacity to move from one job and then have a period where they're not, getting, not being disadvantaged by being out of... Uh, employment, but then they're, they're reskilling, they're retraining, then they're moving into an, another job. Now, um, this is a model that uh, has been looked at across Europe. Uh, uh, with the European Union um, did a uh, had a very hard look at this a few years ago. The 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 uh, challenge is that it's also accompanied 
by a higher level of taxation. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I think the UK looked at this for a while and, uh, you know, the UK has a culture of relatively low um, taxation, income tax, uh, unless you're prepared to put your money where your mouth, mouth is. While, while this is a, a good model for allowing individuals and employers to adapt to changes in the labour market and the economy, um, it, uh, who's going to pay for it is the question that comes to mind. Um, so. Absolutely, yeah, fascinating. Obviously, with all this, we, we refer to this level of you know to 5.9% uh, unemployment rate, which I was genuinely surprised at when it ticked up from 5.7, I think, suddenly at 5.9, so which is basically six. <laughs> um, um, so, you know, and who would have thought even three, four months ago that we would have been contemplating an unemployment level at six. Um, now, I always want to drop this term into a casual conversation, but the, um, the non-accelerated inflation rate of unemployment <laughs> is, estimated, the Nauru, uh, is estimated by the RBA to be around five. So that's the level uh, at which you'll start to see tightness in the labour market to the point where you'll get wage increases. Um, now, we're a long way from there. Um, we get this kind of uh, scratchy season seasonally adjusted data on, on a month-to-month basis. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, can I ask you, you know, this is what you look at every, uh, every day. Um, what do you see when you look at those ABS figures, the trends in them and the season, seasonally adjusted numbers? Well, uh I guess my focus actually is more on the year-to-year trends. Uh, that's the that's what kind of uh, the, our students want. That's what it, that's what the uh, my colleagues want in terms of you know, pr- uh, producing articles and the like. So um, yeah, those seasonally adjusted uh, figures we've got to treat Put them, them to caution. one side. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that uh, that we've got to be mindful of uh, of uh, contemporary trends and issues. But uh, you know, a lot of these challenges are relatively. Slow-moving ones. I mean, that might sound like a funny characterisation of things like technological change and and these population um, challenges that we're facing. But nevertheless, I think that uh, yeah. I mean, the figures I look at mainly are the are the are the year-to-year seasonally adjusted um, uh, rates. Yeah, right. Interesting. And what do you make of the the um, the dynamics in the labour market at present? What are the standout themes for you? Well, I thought it was uh, quite fascinating, curious, good in some respect. My, my first response was positive to see that, you know, that where there has been employment growth it's been full-time jobs and that's uh that's goes against uh what's been happening in in previous uh, years and quarters but um at the same time you know when uh when you see uh, the gig economy starting to accelerate where you see that uh that issues around uh, kind of portfolio careers being put on the agenda you know people having to move from one job to, to the next as in, in response to these, these these external changes in in technology and the like. Um, I, I think that yeah that that work in the future is got, may well change in character. That, it, that may, maybe these full time the full time employment model, the standard employment model. Uh, uh, it's it's been argued by by some researchers that this is kind of a, a dinosaur and it's something that's going to change. Uh, so, um, but at the same time, how do you attach uh, if if you have, uh, if we have, if we're seeing a shift towards more short-term employment arrangements, if we're seeing a shift towards uh, jobs that don't look like that 40-hour week, nine to five, Monday to Friday type model, uh, if we're seeing a rise of self-employment, um, then then all these uh, entitlements that are part of a kind of a social safety net, uh, you know, uh, leave, superannuation, then how do people in the labour market get these? Uh, so um, seeing some experimentation with. An advocacy of portable entitlement schemes um, around things like long service leave or other leave arrangements pioneered for many years in in the construction industry because it's kind of characterised by this uh, very dynamic nature. Oh, really? um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I think uh, I mean, look, it, it's it's a really interesting picture at the moment. So uh, there's a lot going on in the labour market, um, and uh, yeah, it's a uh, watch this space, I guess. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the other big themes, uh, of course. Um, is you know, and this is again goes to this this issue of the the transitioning nature of the economy and the different industries that are, um, like you say, um, you know, we can often get very excited about you know relatively incremental developments, and I'll absolutely take that one on the chin that you know we we, we do. Uh, it wasn't wasn't meant that way. <laughs> no, I, I I know that, but I I definitely think you know we're in the news business. We're um, you know, and sometimes there are developments where you're like you know you need to put a marker down. And you need to say, look, this is actually significant um, uh, in the context of. The stuff that's gone before, this number or this development now seems to be 
the establishment of a trend or or whatever. Um, and part of all of that is this changing, uh, I suppose, industrial mix in the economy. Um, and what we've seen uh, in the last couple of weeks has been this pretty dramatic um, move by um, the Turnbull government to say, well, well we're about abolishing the skills, the current skilled migration scheme, and we're going to replace it with something mm. else. The key features are, of it are, from my reading, one, that it won't be a path to permanent residency. Uh, and then secondly, um, that the new visa for certain um, of the designated roles mm-hmm. um, will be only for two years. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, they've also did, made some changes on the citizenship side, etc. Um, but and they've just stripped out maybe 200 eligible positions mm-hmm. um, from from the designated uh, list. Um, what, have, what did you make of all of that? Uh, well, I, I, my first response was that it was a rebranding exercise. <laughs> uh, that uh, you had the big announcement that we're going to get rid of four, five, sevens, and uh, that's it. And then, oh, hang on, but we're also going to introduce these two new visa categories, which look very similar in their character. <laughs> uh, but I, my, um, I think this is, a, this is a really bad move, I think, by the government, and I'll say it for a couple of reasons. Number one, temporary migration does not have a good track record. Uh, as a, as a, um, it, it does in terms of addressing short-term labour market needs, but not in terms of nation-building. That's a fuzzy, fuzzy um, concept, but, you know, post-war uh, Europe and um, North America, uh, heavy reliance upon guest workers led to all sorts of problems around social um, cohesion, um, people um, staying in one country but not really feeling like they were part, a part of it. And Australia never really had that um, had that experience. It was all permanent migration. Uh, people came here. Of course, you take it a, a while to um, to uh, to develop your place in in, uh, in in the country. But at the same time, um, it was a very positive experience. And then when the four five seven visa was introduced in 1996, there was some concern that, well, we haven't really had a, a large-scale temporary visa like this before. But, it, look, there are issues with the 457. I'm happy to elaborate on it. And, uh, you know, I've been critical of it, of elements of it, uh, and I am critical of elements of it in the past. But um, but, uh, but I think that it is a good model. It, it's, a, it's a temporary visa designed to address short-term needs in the labour market, but provides a transition to permanency for those who come on a 457 visa. That temporary permanent pathway is a very unique and, I would say, successful policy model. And uh, I think there's a big risk that, of the government killing the goose that laid the golden egg. So it's, f- it's fascinating, the, the, the idea that um, this had not occurred to me, that um, the person who's here on the whatever replaces the, the, the 457 is now um, clearly classed as a temporary citizen, mm-hmm. um, you know, somebody who's in there taking a job that an Australian couldn't get. Um, or couldn't mm. or that that a company wasn't able to fill out of the local workforce, and it does change the um, atmospherics, I suppose. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I mean, I think what my response is: why create these two categories? Uh, this this first category of uh, having a four year visa, where there is capacity to transition to permanent residency, if you um, fulfil the the requirements of being in Australia long enough. But that second category, this short term skill shortage visa where there is no path to permanency, uh, that's a, why are we going down that road? I mean, th- this model has not worked anywhere really in the world. I, I don't see what the value of this is for, for the country and for the, for the economy for, in the long term. Uh, skilled migration in Australia, um, very good track record. You know, we did a um, review, some um, colleagues at Sydney University and I for the Lowe Institute last year, uh, a, a report for them. Uh, and our assessment was, you know, this is, uh, has, cons- uh, notwithstanding some challenges, uh, around uh, the degree to which it complements other areas of labour market policy. But in general terms, if you look at uh, the contribution of skilled migrants to the budget, very positive fiscal impact of skilled migrants, very very high employment rates, uh, virtually negligible unemployment among 457 visa holders, mm. very high levels of skills utilisation, you know, using skill, having jobs which utilise the skills that they're brought in to, um, to perform, um, very high earnings capacity, so uh, very high earnings um, outcomes, rather. So um, the, the, there were adjustments that could have been made to the scheme. I think also the way the government did it by saying that this is a visa scheme that's no longer fit for purpose. Business groups were out there last week saying um, that uh, you know, the, the 457, uh, it, uh, it had a, an image problem. Um, and so um, we support this move. But um, the, if, if that's the case, then actually address the root 
the core issues, I think, which are around uh, the deterrent effect that 457 visas have on employer training. I think that's the big issue that hasn't really been addressed and mm. this is why I'm, you know, one of the reasons why I'm critical of this move. There's a point that's related to that too <clears throat> because you're talking about how successful the 457s have been in terms of hi- having highly skilled highly employed, high participation workers in the economy. And we just touched on the unemployment issue and underemployment just just a moment ago. In a a funny way, the success of the 457 program is a bit of an indictment on our education system. I know this is a bit tangential to to the key issue. I I don't think so at all. We've got 750,000 people unemployed. We've got roughly 1.1 million underemployed, that is people who are working but would like to work more hours. And yet... We have trouble, or firms are having trouble, getting the skilled workers required to fulfil whatever the roles happen to be. So they were, therefore, we relied on the four five sevens or this or this new system. So to me, that sort of says, well, hang on, what is wrong with the skill level of these roughly two million people who are either un or underemployed? And it says, well, uh, is our education, our skills training programs, not fit for purpose? Because the purpose should be to. You know, it's all we want to say, you know, we want Australian jobs for Australians and fine, yeah, of course that's the priority. That's the way the Australian government should probably run things. But if you're a, if you're a, an employer and you can't find one of those two million people to fulfil your job and you have to rely on a 457 visa, then it's, it's telling me something that's wrong elsewhere in the economy. So yes. there's many facets to this whole Indeed, process yeah. and it's fascinating to hear you know, your analysis of how successful this visa program has, has been in the past. Which leads me beautifully onto something, Chris, you and I discussed um, very briefly uh, last week, which is the difference between a skills shortage and a recruitment difficulty. So, And there are two different things. Maybe you can um, elaborate on sure. this. Sure, yeah. Um, so the 457 visa and the new visa, the, the temporary skills shortage visa, the objective of, of both is to address skill shortages. Uh, now, Stephen might correct me on this. And I know that this is, con- this is a contested view, but it's a pretty, um, there is a pretty widespread view within the la- labour um, economics community that for a skill shortage to exist, there has to be, it has to be widespread. So it can't be specific to one employer. So if I have you know, a... Um, uh, a retail shop in Pistre Mall, um, then, uh, and I have trouble finding sales assistants. Uh, if my uh, other competitors don't also have trouble finding sales assistants, then it's, that's something that might be specific to my own business, not to the entire industry. So there's got to be a degree of um, commonality. But there's also got to be a, um, some response from the employers. Uh, some, uh, there, to, there has to be some price signal sent um, uh, to the local labour market to try to stimulate supply. There might be people who are qualified to do those jobs and able to do them, but they uh, aren't willing to work for the for the wages or the conditions that are being offered. So um, uh, there's some view that uh, that for a skill shortage to exist, there has to be a wage increase in response. There are other views that, well, there has to be some other, not necessarily wage increases, but there has to be um, the development of, of training or, or career, better career pathways, better conditions. Um, and and uh, the 457 visa uh, was... Uh, the way that it was, that visas were allocated, uh, it was n- was never on the basis of a skill shortage. There was never any independent assessment of whether a skill shortage exists. It was basically, uh, if the there were around seven hundred jobs that somebody could be brought in for, and and these were were jobs that were deemed to be skilled. They were managerial, professional, or skilled um, te- technicians and trades jobs. Um, and, and so, if an employer had a, um, a vacancy for one of those jobs. Uh, and if they claimed that they had trouble finding someone locally, um, then then they could use a 457 visa. And that was basically it. There was no right. real independent... No assessment. test on this. No have test. you offered more money? Have you advertised in neighbouring towns? Have you... Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then so we did some analysis of, uh, of uh, a, sur- some su- a survey data that was collected by the Department of Immigration. They made it available to researchers to analyse and... Um, and, uh, and we found that uh, that um, employers using a 457 visa, and this is there's a response rate of around 90%. So this is basically all in, highly representative um, sample uh, that employers were, were twice as likely to uh, to prioritise looking um, abroad as they were to train existing employees um, as a way of addressing a, a, a skills challenge. Oh, that's fascinating. And, and then only one percent were prepared to basically raise uh, wages. Um, and there's a bit of a mixed picture. In most industries, I think the visa was being used for the purposes that it was intended. Were, employers were using it to, to address 
skills challenges, particularly in industries like health, uh, IT, um, uh, mm. professional engineering services, education, mining. But then if we look at other industries like construction, especially hospitality, mm. employers, we're not really using this to address shortages of people who were qualified to perform these jobs, who, have, who were certified, had the had the certification, but for other other factors, because workers were perceived as more loyal or harder working or more productive, getting into this kind of grey area around soft skills, mm. which I think is an important conversation we need, we need to have. Employers uh, need workers who aren't just qualified but also have the capability to actually use those qualifications productively. But nevertheless, the, the 457 visa was not designed formally to do that. It was no, to manage the yeah, soft skills and like if, it, you, if you're having difficulty retaining staff because your manager is your manager of a bar or whatever it is. Um, there is actually one um, burger joint that um, I go to maybe once a month or so. Every time you go back, completely new faces. It's amazing. And something it, very dear to my heart too, by the way, which yeah. is the horse racing industry. Oh, yeah. They're having a huge problem because the people who are the track riders that have to be there at 3.30 in the morning, uh, they get pretty low levels of wages compared with others within Australia. Uh, Basically, all of those people um, are on 457s. So there's been a groundswell of um, uh, feedback from the horse racing trainers and all these other people. And it is an expensive industry, I can speak from uh, experience. <laughs> um, uh, so if you're having to pay more to have your horse trained and things like that, it's going to be prohibitive. And so they're sort of saying that, hang on, there's... And again, I don't know quite whether it's a skill shortage or the fact that the wages that are being paid for the poor poor people to turn up at 3.30 and ride a horse around a track is too low. I'm, I'm not sure. I certainly don't fit that um, a physique to be a horse rider. Poor buggy horse <laughs> if I got on them. But yeah, but it's, again, it's just another micro example, if you like, of something that's, there's a labour market failure there, if you like, that we, again, with all these people who are unemployed and uh, admittedly there's probably a physical issue associated with being a jockey um, mm. and plus the inconvenience or the undesirability, I suppose, of getting up so early and riding around um, a, a racing track. Yeah. You know, there's, um, a, there's an issue there. So there's a little example of a of a big industry and a, and a very highly um, uh, monetised industry having trouble to find people just riding the horses to get fit. Well, in 2013, um, we sent a reporter during the election campaign to drive from Tony Abbott's electorate up to uh, Kevin Rudd's electorate. Right. Oh, and yes. he went up through... Um, Tamworth, uh, where uh, Tony Windsor was, with Barnaby Joyce was taking him on. Yes. Um, and then he went up through Tenterfield, which is up on the border there in kind of inland. Um, and there is an abattoir there. Uh, and um, it is staffed entirely by uh, uh, Chinese uh, migrant workers who all live in, I, I won't say like appalling conditions because they're not, but they're pretty rudimentary um, old uh I think one was an old pub and kind of all the property had been knocked out of, out of it and people slept on mattresses and on the floor and different parts of it in those little communal areas, etc. Um, but the, um, the thing that I recall from that was that, uh, you know, the people running the abattoir saying there was absolutely no way that they could get um, local kids to go and do that work. Um, which is, this is one of the issues, right? Indeed, yeah, yeah. 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 I was doing some research on the horticulture sector last year and there's parts of... Uh, the well, there's something a little bit less confronting than, <laughs> you know, knocking the heads off pigs, but... Or yeah. pigs yeah, and berries. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I definitely prefer to pick berries and knock the heads off pigs, that's for sure. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, um, in the, the horticulture sector's uh, its main source of labour, basically, is working holiday makers. So another category of temporary visa holders. Uh, and you've got towns, uh, I won't name them, but you know, towns we did case studies in uh, where um, there was local unemployment of uh, you know, 20% and then you had uh, but almost exclusive reliance by uh, employers on, on uh, backpacker labour. And, uh, you know, I think the um, well, question we ask is, well, uh, why? Uh, well, because... Uh, the, the locals are you know they don't want to work or they don't want to they don't want to have to really work hard you know that this is a pretty uh, grueling work um, requires people to be there at an unsociable time and uh, and then you know to work for a long day in 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 uh, in, in the sun um, uh, working holiday makers they've, they've got to do 88 days if they do that then they get a Another visa, a second, a renewal visa, yeah, yep. yeah, and then and you can use this as a pathway to four five seven, maybe a pathway to permanent residency. Um, but so um, it almost seemed, or it seemed to us, uh, our conclusion was that you know employers, some employers in this industry, had become accustomed to uh, a, a 
a particular type of labour supply, which was kind of almost uh, which was conditioned by the regulations that it, people wouldn't have been there. People were getting their 88. The, the workers we interviewed, they, they were getting their 88 days, and then they were out of there. I'm not, I'm not yeah. staying here for another day. Yeah. Um, so. So different motivation to the locals, perhaps, or clearly. Yeah. yeah. Well, whereas for, for the locals, it was like okay, this is a job for a, a longer term time period, and uh, and um, the. The motivation wasn't there. And so I think this is a real challenge. I think you really hit the nail on the head, Stephen, around the, what does this say about our training system? Um, you know, we've had for the last 20 years a kind of a, a investment in, um, in apprenticeship, trade apprenticeship numbers have flatlined. Um, uh, there seems to be a, a much greater reliance on employers on external labour markets, you know, on, rather than developing employers up within their organisations and having a career pathway within the organisation of uh, recruiting externally from poaching from other firms or, or using to a much greater extent um, skilled and temporary visa pathways. Hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, the, the, there's a lot more onus on the individual um, than the individual employee to, to develop skills and to make them attractive commodities in the labour market than there was 20, 25 years ago when, when, when employers coordinated a lot more. There was a lot more activity by industry associations to get their members together, to get the individual employers and go, okay, well, what do we need to invest in to meet shortfalls in the long run? Um, uh, how do we develop pathways to get people into the industry and then keep them here? And there's, it's now a bit more every man for themselves or every 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 person for themselves. Uh, and employers, to a large extent, I don't, I mean, this is a generalisation, but they're deciding not to invest in employees, uh, but uh, and then, but use, using these... You know, skill migration is actually a, a much... If you're an employer with a skill problem, engaging someone on a, on a 457 is a, is a rational choice mm. uh, because uh, the time taken to train somebody up, uh, you know, by the time they're trained up, they, that vacancy or that shortage might not be there anymore. So, That's right, and, they've, and they, they may not work out anyway. Yeah, um, indeed, you know, Whereas the 457 is a little bit lower risk and you'll still have the visa container there to fill from somebody that you can recruit yeah. um, if the individual doesn't work. Um, this has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, we do need to move on to look at um, uh, some of the budget stuff uh, really quickly. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm here with Chris Wright uh, from uh, the University of Sydney Business School and Stephen Kukoulos from Market Economics. Now, Stephen, fascinating uh, decision um, or you know change to how the federal budget is is uh, is presented to us. Um, uh, uh, mere mortals um, uh, by, by Treasury and the Treasurer, um, he's going to uh, distinguish between good debt uh, and, and bad debt. Um, this is in, in a speech today. What do, you, what do you make of all this? Oh, look, first of all, the numbers are in the budget anyway, just that they're not presented in the front page. So in a sense, it's just shuffling some of these numbers that are on page you know, A76 of budget paper number seven and sticking them on the front page. So in a sense, the numbers are there. Classification of good and bad debt is something that's fraught with huge difficulty, I think. Uh, and particularly, as Mr Morrison said in his speech, that, for example, Medicare, borrowing money to fund Medicare is considered to be bad, in inverted commas. Um, and then there's a judgment about whether other areas of debt are good or bad as well. And on the Medicare one, I'll take that as an example, because I've been doing some work for um, the Chipley Research Centre on inequality measures. One of the things that popped up there when we were preparing that work was the correlation between government expenditure on healthcare and then absenteeism, so the healthier the workforce, the less absentee days, so that's enhancing your productivity and your, and your GDP growth rate, so that's one thing, or you don't have to take days off to look after a sick or ailing family member, so that's, that's part of it. But also your workforce is fitter and stronger anyway. So they're less, uh, so they're more inclined to be more productive when they're at work. So there is a bunch of academic evidence, and Chris, you might know this better than I do, um, but there seems to be a, a strong link between spending money on healthcare and workforce participation. People aren't, don't have, you know, sickness and uh, the, the economic performance and productivity and GDP growth. So that's, that's one aspect of the good and bad debt issue. So I don't know what's quite good and what's bad. Mm -hmm. The other element is that, um, there's this, by, by looking at it by category, you're only looking at one half of the budget 
issue. You're not looking at the revenue side. And of course, the revenue, and until now, all the revenue and spending and debt have been sort of fungible. You mm. know, money comes in, money goes out. What's the deficit? And we just borrow to fund, fund mm. that deficit, for example. And so, in fact, in the last few years, it's been revenue shortfalls. Uh, yes. Revenue write downs have been big problems. That's, that's what, been the problem. Yeah. In fact, for five years, you know, Wayne Swan, to his peril, found that out in 2012. And, and Joe Hockey found it out. And even now, Scott Morrison's finding that out. So, for example, if you, if you wanted to be a bit cute with the issue um, and said that, okay, if we look at PAYG income tax payments, if I remember correctly, I might be a little bit wrong on the exact numbers. I don't have the budget numbers in front of me, not today anyway. I think the total PAYG tax is about $160, $170 billion a year, something of that order anyway. The social welfare bill for all elements of social welfare is about $160, $170 billion. And of course, people in a job pay the income tax and people who are unemployed, aged, disabled, whatever, receive that. So if you like, you could say, well, we're actually running a surplus <laughs> on our welfare bill. Um, so that's, we don't even have a debt to fund on our social welfare bill. Uh, so it depends on how you allocate the revenue from income tax, goods and services tax, company tax, and then how you apportion that. To me... They should, in fact, you know, when you, you yeah. get a cyclical boost, which we're likely to see um, this year and possibly next year, um, from this big surge in commodity prices that we've had, you know, maybe there's, you know, the, the, you need to get out your colouring pencil and, <laughs> um, and and shade in that bit, that that boost, because you can measure it, that boost that yes, you got indeed. from the upswing in commodity, and because it was ahead of your forecast in the budget. And and to me, things like uh, good, and the other thing too, if something is considered to be bad deficit, well, don't bloody spend the money on it in the first place. So if you're perceiving that, oh, gosh, that money we have to borrow to fund um, the age pension is ba a bad deficit, well, don't pay the pension. That's the solution in my mind. And Brutal. Well, is it bad otherwise? And that's going to be the problem I think Scott Morrison has explaining for it. I don't think it's quite as bad as John Hewson's birthday cake and the GST problem, but there's all these issues about good and bad debt too because, again, if you think about the other thing, which, of course, the coalition's very strong about, that the interest we pay on government debt is just money being... Uh, thrown out the window, so to speak. What about the interest that you pay on the borrowings to fund good debt? <laughs> so if you borrow some money, you put it into good spending and good infrastructure spending, of course you're going to be paying interest on that forever. Is the interest on that good or bad? So there's this question that really distracts from, I think, the more fundamental underlying point, and that is the budget deficit is still sort of wide and sort of substantial and probably going to be there for quite a while, even though we might get a bit of a boost from this commodity price uptick. Um, the level of government debt is sort of sort of high. I'm not terribly worried about it, but, you know, at 20% of GDP, you know, it's going up, not down at the moment. Mm. We're still vulnerable to any external shock. So, uh, and we've still got these two point odd, two million people un or underemployed again, as we've just been chatting about at length. So I think that there's bigger issues to worry about and um, budget repair, government debt management, and then, of course, managing the economy are much more important. And if a project's worth borrowing money to, to build, do it. I, I definitely agree with you that it's fraught with problems. I think the, the big landmine here is in uh, just over a week's time, they um, set out this demarcation of different kinds of debt, and it looks overtly political that, you know, departments that are you know, t typically it tend to have their budgets increase under Labour governments um, or, or get, you know, slapped with a, a you know, a red card or, or whatever it is. They give them, you know, instead of a gold star, they give them, you know, um, however they, 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 they grade them. Um, I think that's, I think they'll um, be laughed off the stage. I just think that will just be very, um, very damaging to confidence in the budget process. And I think they've got to be exceptionally careful with not to be seen to be overtly political about, well, welfare is bad um, because people don't think that. I, I don't no, believe I don't think they do. Middle Australia does not. Um, understands the need for a good, strong social welfare net, um, a social safety net. So um, I think they, they need to be exceptionally careful about that. The other thing is that um, from what I can see, it's the difference between the net operating balance and then you add in net capital expenditure and then you get the fiscal the overall fiscal deficit, which is what we refer to as the deficit level, um, whereas they want to put a little bit more focus on the net operating balance uh, balances, which is your recurring uh, income from things like income taxes um, uh, and then your recurring spending on health, welfare, 
um, education and so on and through the programs that you've committed to. Um, but as we all know, accountants can do magical things uh, with things like um, ca uh, ca whether, whether you decide to classify something as capital expenditure or, uh, or a, spending pro a recurrent spending program over a particular period of time. So I think that um, might also raise some questions, and I think there's some potentially some problems well, in there for the... On education, that's the thing, building a school hall, for example, a very valid one as, your, as our population grows and we're wanting to build more dwellings in, in the outskirts of the major cities, we're going to have to build more schools, for example. Uh, is that good debt or bad debt, for example? Well, I think um, they could easily um, class, classify so that as the capital expenditure. Sure. But then what happens if you develop a really good new modern... Um, say overnight, they develop a hugely new modern STEM program for schools and, and yeah. first year of university or something. But this is going to be an ongoing cost because mm -hmm. this is an investment in the future. How do you classify that? Well, that's the, the distinction between good debt is investment in productive capacity and bad debt, unsustainable recurrent spending. So, yeah, there's a whole range of categories that could fit into somewhere in between. Like you, know, you mentioned health, Stephen, education as well, um, in the NDI, NDIS, those types of initiatives. Uh, so... Yeah, uh, you know, was it Reagan who's, uh, Cheney said that Reagan proved that deficits don't matter? Well, I don't know, but Scott Morrison, if he doesn't define these categories you know, clearly enough, he might, uh, he might uh, rather than creating a solution to, to um, debt, to, um, to, um, to spending, um, uh, that he might actually cause a, a problem for himself. And if there is an upside to it, I guess it might just reinforce the discussion that should always be held that anything that is wasteful in terms of government spending shouldn't be done. I don't think either side, this is not a partisan issue, it's where you can see wasted money from the government. I think everybody would agree yeah. that just don't do it. If it's bad, don't do it and, and use that money elsewhere in the economy or give it back in lower taxes, one or the other or both. So uh, if, if there's something that comes from this discussion, and of course it's in its infancy and we'll see exactly what they do in the budget in, in a couple of weeks' time, it's to perhaps refocus on the spending, spending priorities of the government. What is important? What do we want? And we've learnt, I think, in the last 10 years or so, both uh, at a national level but also at a state government level, that the electorate is very powerful in terms of what they want the government to provide. I think uh, a combination of an ageing population, uh, awareness of what the government does provide in terms of your health, disability care, education, uh, public transport needs, uh, and we saw it in the 2014 budget, the one that spectacularly failed, um, was the public wants the government to provide some services. It does, yeah. And they're sort of happy to pay for it. Um, you know, no one wants to pay more tax. That's fair enough. I understand that. But if they can see that you know, the, the tax increase, for example, the classic case with the NDIS, the Disability Insurance Scheme, the Medicare um, uh, levy increased by half a percentage point, it went through to the keeper with no one no one that I'm aware of being seriously against it mm. because people could say, okay, I don't want to pay more tax or have my Medicare levy increased, but if it's going to fund a significant proportion of the disability insurance scheme, fair enough, I don't yeah. mind. Yeah. Um, I think with you mentioned the 2014 budget and I, I touched on that on a piece I've written today. Uh, I think it, um, we, it wasn't live before we jumped in here. It's probably up there now um, unless one of the uh, team has spiked it because of some horrendous problem in it. Anyway, um, but um, I've basically set out this reason because I actually being, you know, mildly uh, controversial as I want to do um, – uh, I actually think this is a very, very important step. At least Morrison is trying to do something to try and break what I would characterize as a pretty toxic um, uh, culture in Australia that's developed in Australian politics since the Howard years um, of surpluses being um, the only standard um, by which you can measure your economic management. That if you don't have what is referred to as a credible path to surplus, um, that you are not fit to govern. Whereas I think um, being able to somehow reset that sometimes government, it is a, it is right for governments to borrow um, for certain programs, particularly if you talk about, um, let's you know we need we need to build a new port because we got a. Um, move some stuff or get some, some stuff into the country. We've got to build some more roads so that people can get, can get to work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we, we've got to um, – one of the points I make in this is our universities, I think, 
I think people look at the global university ra- rankings and you kind of have to fish around for, um, you know, until you find the Australian universities. You know, I think people would love to see um, um, our Australian universities being real leaders. Um, and that's going to cost some money, right? Um, you can't do it all just by um, waiting for the Australian dollar to fall down and, <laughs> you know, importing. Um, but, you know, and, and I think the universities have been doing very well in, in recent years um, uh, uh, to, to, to manage this. But, but you know, developing world-class facilities, um, world-class programs, attracting, um, you know, the best and brightest, um, you know, creating um, big, I suppose, centres of gravity for these uh, centres of thinking and learning so that Australia becomes famous for them, not just actually it's a nice place with some good universities. Mm. Um, uh, You know, those kind of things. Um, That's the kind of thing that I think people can get on board with. And I I think hopefully my – the optimist in me says that this is an opportunity now to reset that conversation and to like not – you know, for the gotcha interviews with um, the treasurer and the prime minister, but you know, you're not seeing a surplus now for another seven years. Doesn't this make you a you know terrible economic manager? Which is just you know, as long as they're reducing that deficit over time, and particularly if the economic forecasts are reasonable, that it should repair itself as long as there's some spending restraint and um, in there too. Just a, a quick aside um, on the uh, university funding uh, situation. You know, the, one of the Unintended consequences, likely unintended consequences of the 457 visa changes is that it it could have knock-on effects for the education sector. People coming here as a student and then transitioning to a 457, then transitioning to a permanent residency. International students' enrolments have gone up from 30,000 in 1990 to around 300,000 in 2015. Tenfold increase. Spicy meatball. It sure is, yeah. yeah, You're paying very, um, very high fees. Uh, and largely, um, along with endowments, which have, have increased, universities have become more focused on endowments, but along with that has, to some extent, supplemented uh, diminishing uh, government funding of universities. So <laughs> governments yeah. might have to step in uh, if they want to sustain the universities' positions in the global rankings if some of these knock-on effects around uh, around uh, permanent residency um, kick in. I think very interesting. I really, really enjoyed that conversation about um, the labour market and skilled migration. I think it was you know, great uh, change of pace for us uh, on the show. Uh, you've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Um, I've been here with Stephen Kukulis. Stephen, thank you um, for coming on the show again. An absolute pleasure. I look forward to the next one. And also Dr Chris Wright from the University of Sydney Business School. Chris, great having you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Paul. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. Um, we're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as well, Paul Colgan, and Stephen Kukulis at The Kook. Uh, great presence on Twitter. You, um, if you're not already following him, uh, you should get in there. Uh, he's um, got great chat and live discussion of markets and economics threat day. Um, you can find us on iTunes, like I said, Devils and Details, where you can rate us and leave us a review and subscribe. The show has been produced by Rick Salter, and we'll talk to you next time. episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.